Hi, good morning, church. Um, good morning. My name's Deanne, and I'll be reading from our text today, which is Matthew 21 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for a day and sent them out into the vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and at about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and still found others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When everything came, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and then going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they experienced, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But, you answered, but he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Hey, everybody. Good to be with your friends. Those of you here in the room and those online, good morning. It is, uh, it's a good day to be with everybody. Uh, hey, uh, I want to add my happy Mother's Day as well. Thankful for all of you as a church and the support that moms and parents get around here. There's a lot of hands that go into making a church family a family, uh, those who are moms and those who aren't. So we're just really thankful for all of you. And uh, I'm thankful for my wife, who's a wonderful mom. She's not in here at the moment, but say that even in her absence, she's in with, uh, with the preschoolers this morning, and my mom, who's probably online. Hi, mom. Uh, and uh, yeah, we just have a lot to be grateful for. Uh, hey, you might notice this morning that uh, you are walking and standing on fresh carpet. I don't know if you saw this, uh, but stoked on that. Um, and just a, a shout out, a thank you to those who have been in here at different times during the week, uh, clearing stuff out, putting stuff back in, putting stuff back together. Notably, we had tech folks in here yesterday on a Saturday busting it, putting all the things back together that I don't understand, but it's all wired back up. So anyway, thank you everybody who is part of that. Super, super appreciate it. Thank you, folks. Uh, hey, and then the teaching this morning. <clears throat> so somebody asked, are we going to do a, a Mother's Day message? And, and uh, Cameron, actually, our children's and youth pastor, sent me a, a, a meme that was like a pastor spinning a wheel, and it was like Mother's Day sermon, Esther, Ruth, Proverbs 31, and you know, pick the one it lands on. We're actually not. We shout out to the moms, have some coffee, and we're in our series on the parables 
Uh, it's just to clear up, in case you're wondering as we're going, how does this relate to moms? It's not related. We're thankful for you moms, and now we're going to look at parables of Jesus. They're two separate things. But, uh, so we've just started this series on the parables, stories that Jesus told to teach about God, to teach about the kingdom, to teach about people, to teach about life. And he told these stories, and the one that we are looking at today has to do with the amazing generosity of God, uh, that God is actually more generous than we're able to imagine, more generous than we typically give him credit for. And uh, on the surface, like we hear that and say, okay, that's great news, yes? I mean, who doesn't want a God who's incredibly generous? That sounds terrific. Ironically, we can have some hang-ups around that too. And this parable is about the hang-ups that we experience because of the generosity of God. So uh, this is how it generally works. When God's generosity is directed towards me, nine times out of ten at least, that's a really good thing. I'm really happy for that. But sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes when God's generosity hits somebody else, in a way that seems out of proportion, or seems like it's slighting me, or it, it hits me weird, then we have a negative experience inside of that. And, and jealousy, envy, especially towards the good fortune of somebody else, that's one of those things that, like, we don't want to talk about that. That's, we're just like, oh, that's a gross emotion. I don't want to experience that. Uh, there's, there's a book. I haven't actually read the book. I've seen it on my wife's shelf. But I was like, ah, oh, this title says it all. The book's title is, I'm happy for you. And then in parentheses, it says, sort of. And then after that, it says, not really. <laughs> I was like, that's it. That's the thing. Uh, sometimes we experience envy in relation to others, too. And specifically in, in the way they're experiencing life, the outcomes they're experiencing, and whether or not that seems right to us. Like, that seems fair. Uh, you know, we were talking about this in our, our small group this last week. It came up, uh, ironically for us, as we were, were working through this series on grace in our small group. And, and just reflecting on different experiences that some of us have had. You know, of, of why is it that I've worked so hard as a parent? I've been so intentional, and my kids have gone through this. And this other person, it seems like they haven't done any of that. And as far as I can tell, their kids are great. Or how come I've, I've served God so faithfully and I've had to battle cancer? And this other person, they, they seem to just kind of live their life. And, you know, it's, nothing happens to them. They seem healthy and strong and everything's fine. Uh, my wife and I, and our, our, we had a five-year journey of infertility and miscarriages before having our children. And the envy we experienced in that time, we didn't want to. But it was consuming at times can be so, so difficult. And it's, we hate admitting this. It's so gross, right? It's such an ugly emotion. We don't ever want to experience this over someone else's good fortune. But I love this about the Bible, right? The, the Bible consistently does this. It takes us into the real stuff of life, the, the, even the gross stuff that we don't want to talk about, the stuff that that, you know, we just want to kind of peel back the rug and sweep it under there and forget about it. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm getting under that rug. We're going to see that dirt. Or those things like we stuff in the closet and we're like, I don't want to admit that that's something that I deal with. We hide it all in there. We have our Monica closet. Did you watch Friends in the 90s? Do you know what I'm talking about? Monica is like this total neat freak, 
big, like super, super clean apartment, but then there is this, this one closet. You open the closet and it's like, boom, everything has been stuffed in there. Jesus just gets right into that place, into that Monica closet in our lives. He says, no, no, no. My goal is to form you in such a way that your inner life looks like my inner life. And that means we go even to those places. Uh, so this morning, this morning, Jesus tells the story, Dee has read it for us, and kind of the heart of it is this. It's that Jesus wants to make us people who are able to experience true joy in God's generosity towards ourselves and also towards others. Deep, abiding joy in this aspect of God's character is generosity that we know is amazing, we know is good. He wants us to experience deep joy in who God is as it relates to us and as it relates to others too. And so Jesus tells the story where he points out several pitfalls, things that, that keep us from experiencing the joy of God's grace and really taking it in as what it is. And he points out these pitfalls, and we're going to look at those this morning as we go through this text. Let me pray for us, and we'll turn back to the scriptures. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for who you are. In our best moments, we are able to receive that fully. We are able to embrace every aspect of who you are, and we are able to long for that to be made manifest in our lives too. But God, we confess that we are so often a mess. God, there are conflicting things going in us, and as you are working out your life in us, as you are working out the salvation that you've given us, God, we confess that we need your grace for that. We need you to work in us in such a way that we can embrace with full joy who you are making us into. So God, we give you thanks. We open ourselves to your Holy Spirit as we come to this text this morning. We pray that you do your good work in us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, joy in God's generosity and the pitfalls that keep us from that. So here's number one. First pitfall is this. It's thinking I deserve more. Thinking I deserve more. Now, you've got to picture the scene in this parable as we've listened to it, yes? So uh, the, it starts in the marketplace. And the marketplace is the job center in first century Palestine. That's the place that you go if you are looking for work, or it's the place that you go if you're an employer who is looking for workers. This is the place, right? And, uh, and at harvest time, and this, this parable is set in harvest time, it's sort of all hands on deck, right? This is the one time where, where employers need as many people as they can get because time is of the essence. You've got to harvest right at that moment so that none of the crop is wasted. This is your income for the year. And for workers, too, who are, are looking for work because they have none, or looking for work because many poorer farmers, they would work their own land in the morning and they'd come out later in the day and try to get hired on somewhere else for some extra income. Uh, but but this, is, this is kind of the scene. And, and it was full days, right? It is all hands on deck and it is sun up to sundown. And into this scene in the marketplace that the original hearers would have been very familiar with, you have this crazy, generous employer who represents God, 
and he comes into the marketplace and for some inexplicable reason, he has a tremendous heart for these workers, right? And there's a, a couple little things in here that we might not pick up automatically, but certainly the original hearers would have, right? The fact that the landowner himself is coming into the marketplace is a little bit weird. Typically, you would send your foreman or a trusted employee to go into the marketplace. But this, this landowner, again and again and again throughout the day, he keeps coming back. He keeps looking for more. And you might, as, as a hearer of this, wonder, why is that? What is it in this employer that makes him want to seek out these folks who are in need of work? And the fact that he, he keeps on giving work as well. Uh, you have these folks, and we're never given a reason for why they're, they're there uh, as the day goes on. We can assume a lot into it, but uh, the text really doesn't give us a reason when it comes down to it. And this employer just wants to give them a job and work and a reward. The crux of the story is, uh, is you've got, of course, workers who have been there the whole day, 12 hours long, and you've got workers who have been there one hour of the day. And he pays those, those one-hour workers first. And they receive a full denarius. It's a standard day wage in, uh, in that time and place. And they can't believe it, right? They are filled with joy. They were expecting to receive one-twelfth of a day's pay because that's what they worked. And they find they receive a full day's pay. Now, their joy is mirrored by the folks who have been there 12 hours because they expect naturally that when they get to the front of the line, they're going to receive a huge payday. And so they're all filled with joy, right up until they're not, <laughs> when they discover that they also are receiving a day's pay. And then, then listen to this. This is the response of those 12-hour workers. It says, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. That's our one-hour workers. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. That's a key phrase for us there. You have made them equal. They did so little, I did so much, and yet we've been put on the same level. You have made them equal to us. And they're bugged. And of course they're bugged, right? I would be, I'm sure you would be. If, if we were working in this vineyard and this was the outcome, I would be the first one to be like, hey man, not cool. I don't like this at all. But don't miss the point here, right? Jesus is not giving a, a parable about good labor relations. He's talking about the generosity of God making a point that God is generous in ways that the typical person never would be. And with that, he's also upending our notions of what we deserve and what other people deserve. And that's the heart issue that Jesus is beginning to drive us toward here. Now, note here, I, I think it's important Nowhere in this parable does the landowner deny that the 12-hour workers did more work. 
right? It's not that he's saying you are equal in the output, but at the end of the day in their outcome, they are experiencing the same thing. Now, someone is saying, now wait a minute, aren't there, in heaven isn't there like levels of reward? And that's, that's kind of a thing for another day. Uh, but truly, inside of our eternal reward, uh, there, is, there is a sense in which those who have done more do receive in different ways. Who those people are is part of what, uh, what this parable is challenging, and we'll come back to that. But what the landowner here does do is he denies that anyone is being treated unfairly in any way. So here's the thing, and this, this shows up a lot in the writings of Paul in the New Testament too. But we have a tendency as people, we have a tendency to overrate our positives and then to underrate our negatives. Right? When we are evaluating ourselves, when we are the ones that are holding the scales, we have a tendency to overemphasize those things that we get right and to underestimate or even just flat out dismiss the things that we tend to get wrong. Uh, so maybe it works like this. That great thing you did for that person, man, you hold on to that. You remember that thing. When you were on that bus and you gave up your seat to that older woman because it looked like she could use the seat, and you, you, know, you remember that, and you're like, hey, I did that thing, and that was a really tremendous thing. Or when you're leaving the grocery store and there's the person with the sign, and you go back into the store and you, you buy them something to eat and you bring it to them, it sticks with you. You remember that you did that thing. When you stayed out late on Saturday, but then you showed up to church on Sunday, you were like, hey, check me out. I actually came, and you remember that thing. When you supported that cause, that really important one, when you supported it, and then you even went online, you posted about the fact that you supported it, you remember that, and you're like, yeah, I did that thing because that's the kind of person that I am. When you overlooked that rude comment from a coworker, and you just let it go, you kind of carry that and go, yeah, yeah, I did that. And here's why. We have a tendency, and there's a, there's a grip load of psychological studies that talk about this too. It's really fascinating. But we have a tendency to look for factors that uphold the narrative that we have about ourselves. Right? The biases that we have for ourselves, when we do things that confirm that particular bias, we hold on to those and say, yep, there it is. That just shows the kind of person that I am. That's what we do with our positives. But then when it comes to our negatives, we don't hold on to those quite so tightly. They have a way of slipping through our fingers a little bit more, again, a little downplayed, if not totally forgotten, at least minimized. And so that moment on the way to work when traffic wasn't really working out for you and that one person cut you off and you, know, you had some gestures and some words for that person, you don't think about that for the rest of the day. That one kind of slips through. You're not defining who you are by that moment. No, no, no. That one, we kind of let that go. Or the 10 folks this week that were holding a sign saying they needed food that you walked by before the one that you gave food to, you don't remember the 10. You remember the one. Uh, the lustful thoughts you had towards the hot coworker when you shooed away your kids who were wanting attention because you felt like Netflix was the better choice in that moment. Uh, 
when you fudge the truth so you could get that sale. Uh, when you let the boss believe the coworker was to blame and you had no share in that blame. Those things we don't hold on to in the same way. We tend to take those not as a demonstration of who we are, but as anomalies to who we are. We dismiss and say, well, you know, that was, uh, was the one time, or everybody does that, or whatever the case might be. But it's, it's our human nature, it's our tendency to hold on to those actions that support the narrative that I'm a pretty good person, not perfect, not very many of us hold a narrative that we're a perfect person, but almost all of us walk around with the narrative that we're a good person. And we favor those actions, attitudes, behaviors that reinforce that view of ourselves. And we dismiss those, uh, those factors that would speak against that. Consequently, most of us walk around most of the time with an overinflated sense of what we deserve. Because our view of ourselves is distorted, is skewed towards the good, <clears throat> we also hold an overinflated view of what it is that we might deserve. Now, this is getting gross, right? We're, we're in the Monica closet, everybody, and we're not liking it. Uh, it gets even worse, because that's our view of self. But the other thing that the New Testament tells us, and studies confirm this too, uh, the New Testament is right, surprise, surprise. Um, not only that, but when it comes to other people, we don't necessarily weigh their actions and attitudes the same way. Especially if we already hold a negative view of that person, but even if we don't we typically are much more generous with our self-assessment than we are our assessment of others. And so the behavior that we might see in ourselves as being an anomaly and not demonstrative at all of who I am or the kind of person or my character, and we would just set that aside. We see that in somebody else and we're just aghast. We're like, oh, they would do that. What kind of a person would do that? And so our comparisons are skewed too because we're looking at ourselves in ways that are biased towards the favorable and we're looking at others perhaps in ways that are biased towards the negative. And so our perspective of what's deserved gets thrown off even that much more. We lose the joy of the generosity of God when our focus is on what I deserve. And then we grumble against the landowner. We grumble against God because we wonder why in the world would they have their outcome and I would have my outcome and how dare you make me equal to that person. And Jesus, because he loves us, friends, he wants to get in there and explode these notions of what we do and don't deserve and replace this with a view of a God who is incredibly generous to the deserving and the undeserving. Our problem is that we misunderstand what it is that we deserve. Uh, we come into the story and we forget 
that 12 hours ago, you and I were standing in the marketplace and we were cold and we were scared and we were praying that someone would come along and give us work because if they didn't, us and our families would not be eating that night. And we flip on a dime from that gratitude of being found by that generous God to wondering why he's finding that other person in the same way. It slips through our fingers so easily. And friends, we lose the joy in God's grace when we fall into the trap of thinking that we deserve more. Now that's the first. And the second is related to it, a second way that we lose the joy of God's grace given to us is we lose it in doubting God's fairness. Doubting his fairness. And the reasoning, I think, maybe goes something like this in your head. It looks something like this in mine. But if God doesn't reward in the way that I think he should, if my outcomes don't seem to be in direct proportion to what I think God owes me, and if that person's outcomes seem to be maybe more than what I think maybe God owes them, well, that calls the whole system into question. How can I trust a God who is this unfair with the way that this whole spiritual economy works? And that's part of the accusation that these 12-hour workers are leveling against the landowner too. Verse 13, it says this. It says, but he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Now, the landowner, he's getting a little technical here, right? He's kind of getting into the fine print of the contract and saying to these 12-hour workers, hey, I'm not mistreating you. When you agreed to work for me, this is what you agreed to. You agreed to a denarius. And he says, I abided by that contract. I'm not being unfair. And then here's the part where we struggle. He says, if I want to be generous with somebody else, that doesn't really have anything to do with you. Mm. Do you remember the story? Maybe you know the story, but in the end of John's gospel, there's this, this really beautiful, tender passage with Peter. And Peter, you, you might know the story, but Peter, as Jesus was being led away to trial and crucifixion, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. And it crushed him. When he realized what he had done, he wept. He was broken. And the resurrected Jesus meets him, and he, he gives Peter three chances to reaffirm his love for Jesus. Three times he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And each time Peter says, yes, I do. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. He reinstates Peter. He gives him, gives him back a job, gives him his calling. It's this beautiful passage for every time that Peter denied Jesus, he gets a chance to reaffirm his love for him. But then at the end of the story, there's this really interesting little piece where Peter, having just experienced God's grace in one of the most beautiful ways that we see in Scripture, he looks over and he sees John, one of the other disciples, and he says, what about him? What's his story going to be? Because, by the way, part of what Jesus told Peter was that he was going to serve Christ and then he was going to be killed. And Peter wants to know, what about the other guy? And Jesus says to him, you know, that's his story. Slight paraphrase. 
He says, if, if I want him to remain alive, what is that to you? Uh, it's been said that comparison is the thief of joy. And isn't that true? God's fairness directed towards you and directed towards me. It has nothing to do with anybody else. Sometimes it's hard for us to receive that. And you might think in reading the parable, okay, so, so the landowner says, and the landowner, of course, represents God, okay, uh, I'm going to do what's right by you. And if I'm generous with other people, what does that mean to you? We might think, who would object to that? And actually, there's a few standing there listening to Jesus tell the story that might object. In that crowd, you had the Pharisees, right? And they re represent the highly religious crowd. And they are meticulous about their religious observance. And for them, it might be looking at somebody who's less outwardly religious and saying, I don't want them to have the same outcome as I do. I want mine to be better. Could have been the people of Israel in general. You know, the, the Jewish folks who are listening to Jesus. Jesus talked a lot about how the Gentiles were going to be included in also. They may well have looked back at their history and said, look how hard we worked to follow God and look how much we suffered to follow God. And they get to come in too? What's the price of admission going to be for them? God, you better ratchet that up. We've got to make this thing equal. It could have been the disciples. At the end of chapter 19, right before we get into this parable, the disciples are protesting and they're saying, hey, we gave up everything to follow you. And they might be looking down the pipe saying, well, these others who come in, what are they going to have to give up? But Jesus, he takes all this, our notion of fairness, he turns it on its head. He says, my being generous over there does not make me unfair over here. And how is this the case? How can this be? And much like when we talk about our view of what we deserve and what others deserve, that's skewed. And our view of fairness is often skewed as well. Think about it this way. The gospel says that you and I are rebels that we would rather live our own way, live by our own standard, than submit ourselves to the king of the universe who says, no, no, I want you to do it this way. And fairness for that, what the scriptures teach us, is that fairness would be us suffering the consequences of that rebellion. Uh, that it would be suffering, it would be spiritual death, it would be separation from God, what the scriptures call hell. But the gospel also tells us that instead, what we get is a God who comes out and finds us in the marketplace. A God who seeks us out even when we aren't looking for him. Who calls us to himself. Who pays the cost of our debt himself. Forgives our sin. Invites us into his home. Bathes us. Cleanses us. Takes away our sin. Takes away our shame adopts us as his children, brings us to his dinner table where we eat with the rest of the family, and in the life to come, eternal life. Now we might pause and ask ourselves, is that fair? The answer is no. 
That's not fair. Fair is us paying the consequence for our own sin. God paying the consequence for our sin isn't fairness. It's what the Bible calls grace. And here's where we get off track. We want God to be fair, not remembering that fairness would not be that pleasant for us. God is, you could say, he is unfair, but it's in our favor. And it's not between you and the person next to you and what different experience you have. It's about the fact that you deserved a certain thing and God gave you better than that. Only in that sense is the landowner unfair. Not in shortchanging us in any way. Friends, we lose the joy of the grace God has given us when we fall into the trap of thinking we deserve more and we lose it when we begin to doubt whether or not God is fair. And finally, uh, a third thing we see in this text keeps us from this joy is this. It's not believing that God wants me to be happy. Now, sit with us for a second. Not believing that God wants me to be happy. Now the story ends with this line. The landowner says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And then this, he says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Now follow me here. So this line, this last line connects us back to chapter 19, right? That's the last line in chapter 19 as well. We're not going to not going to read all that, but I encourage you maybe later. It's a great study. Read all of Matthew 19 and Matthew 20 because this parable, this story, is sandwiched into this bigger context. It comes in the middle of three stories, three interactions that Jesus has with people who miss the kingdom of God because they couldn't trust that God actually wanted their happiness. They could not believe that if they submitted themselves to this king, that if they followed God's way, that they would be happy. And so they had to make adjustments to that. And they're, they're these, these rather tragic stories of people who in different ways are missing what God is doing, his grace right there in front of them. Because ultimately they can't trust that they'll be happy if they go God's way. And, uh, and not by chance, when you look at these three encounters, they map out over the areas of sex and money and power. Sound familiar? We talk about those three a lot here. Uh, through 2,000 years of church history, the spiritual greats have always come back to those three. So at the root of most of our sin, we have the, the quest for one of those three things. But uh, read them on your own later, but I just want to give you kind of an outline of each of them because they're so significant. The first story, the first encounter that Jesus has is with a group of highly religious people. They are your avid churchgoers. They love God dearly. They know the scriptures, but they really want to modify God's sexual standards to better suit their desires. In fact, being the Bible scholars that they are, they've even found a way to make the Bible justify this move with a little bit of hermeneutical gymnastics. They've made it happen. And Jesus asked about this, and Jesus says, no. And he takes them back to the very beginning of the scriptures. He says, no, no, no. The standard God established for us is still the standard. 
And the disciples, they're listening to this and they object, right? They say, this is too hard. You know, if, if this is the case, you know, I, I don't know if I even want this. How can I be happy if I don't get to bend the sexual rules to fit who I am? And Jesus' reply to them is instructive. He ups the ante on them and says, you know what? Some even choose singleness for the sake of the kingdom. And they're going to find more of God in that than you will in the changes that you are trying to make. He says to them, in essence, there is so much more to be had in God than in the things that you would chase after yourself. The second encounter. Further into Matthew 19, Jesus comes across this young man, or this young man comes to him, and this young man is rich, but he is empty. And he knows he's not living a kingdom life, and he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I do? And Jesus, I love this in the text, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he says the hardest words this young man will ever hear. He says, if you want to experience God in all his fullness, you need to get rid of your money. You need to sell your possessions, give them to the poor. Right? And Jesus says this out of love. He's not being mean. But he's saying, in essence, to the young man, your money, your stuff has become an idol. And it is keeping you from experiencing what God truly has for you. And it says the young man went away sad because he couldn't give up his money. Right? He couldn't, in essence, believe that he could still be happy if he was to follow God. He had to go his own way. And he misses God's grace because of it. Again, the disciples, they're kind of, they play the foil in these stories, yeah? So the disciples, they pipe up and they're like, hey, hey, Jesus, we've given everything to follow you. And he says, listen, you are going to experience both in this life and in the life to come a hundred times more richness than that young man will. But the rich young man, he couldn't believe God wanted him to be happy. Third story. So this comes, comes after this parable. It's at the end of chapter 20. Two of Jesus' disciples come to him. And they come asking for a favor. They say, we want to sit on your right hand and your left hand when your kingdom comes. In other words, we want a place of honor. We want a place of power. We want to share in your glory. We want status. It's a way of saying, we want to rule over everybody but you, <laughs> right? We want to be vice presidents in the coming kingdom. And Jesus says to them, you don't understand. The world's way is to amass power, lord it over other people. And he says, that's not what we do in the kingdom. My way is if you want to be great, then you are to become a servant. And he says of himself, he says, even the son of man, uh, he didn't come to, to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says to those who are seeking power, there is so much more in God. Mm -hmm. Now friends, hear this, because this is so where we live. But the failure to believe that we can be happy outside of following God, obedience to the teachings of Jesus, our failure to do that robs us of the joy that comes with grace. Mm -hmm. When it comes to sex, 
We say, I want to indulge my flesh the way that I want to. That is the thing that will bring me happiness. When it comes to money, we say, I want all the things. And we burn a lot of people in the pursuit of that and in power. You don't have to be very powerful to have power. You only have to say, I want to treat others the way that I want to treat them. And just like that, you're abusing power. And Jesus, Jesus challenges all that. And this parable is part of that. The first will be last. The last will be first. Mm-hmm. The challenge that Jesus issues us is basically this. Do I believe that I will be more satisfied, more fulfilled, more complete if I walk in Jesus' way or in my own way? St. Ignatius of Loyola, so brilliantly, he said this, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness. Take that in. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants is my deepest happiness. Testimony of the kingdom, the teachings of Jesus, are that our most fulfilling, most satisfying life is going to be lived as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This morning, as we respond, uh, I want to direct us towards this core question, right? This place of surrendered trust. And this parable leaves us in a good place to consider this because, of course, if I don't believe that God ultimately wants my happiness, I'm going to choose my flesh 10 times out of 10. But if I believe in God's economy, the first will be last and the last will be first. If I believe in God's economy, that there's enough generosity for me to receive from him and others can receive from him too. If I believe that I'm not in a place of deserving and being able to exact demands on God based on what I have or haven't done, then I'm able to live from a place of fulfilled contentedness. Jesus invites us to that. And he backs us up. He says, in essence, if you don't believe that God is this good, look at what I've done for you choosing to take on human flesh, choosing to go to a cross on your behalf. He says, you can trust that I want your good. This morning, uh, I want to invite you as we respond uh, in worship, as we come to the communion table, as we pray together, to maybe consider this question. Are there any areas of sin Maybe any areas of money or sex or power. Places where I am saying to God, I want it my way, not your way. This morning, can you entrust those to Jesus? Can you entrust that he is good enough that if you surrender yourself to him, that he will see to your happiness? Can you surrender places in your heart this morning where maybe you feel you're more deserving than others? Places where you look at yourself and you say, man, look at this resume. God, come on. I've been doing the things. Is that something maybe you can surrender this morning? 
and instead just receive grace from a God who seeks you out and loves you. This morning, as we worship, we want to pray that God would give us grace to meet him in this way, to receive from him what we need. You don't have to muscle this out. These things are hard. And Jesus will meet us in the midst of these. Can we pray together?